So let's talk about what Jesus accomplished at the cross. In order to understand what Jesus accomplished, we have to understand the problem. So you ask the question, whenever you're talking to somebody about the atonement and they have a different view of you, start with the question, what was the problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation was designed to fix? Because how you define the problem, how you diagnose the issue, will frame how you see the solution. If the person says, well, got you in legal trouble with the ruling authority, we're in legal trouble, we now are, and they give the example that I've heard many, many times, we now are condemned on death row, and, and, and we're waiting for the magistrate to, to pass the final sentence and to imp- execute the judgment on us. We're, that's where we are. We're, we're legally condemned to die. If that's the problem, you understand they will frame the solution as a legal solution to take care of a legal problem. And why would they frame the problem as a legal problem? Because they accept the idea that God's law functions like human law. And there it goes back to that root again, asking that question. How do you understand God's law? If it works like human law, then sin is breaking a rule and it requires the ruling authority to use his power to inflict punishment. Thus, we're in legal trouble. And it really roots in misunderstanding God's law. You come back to design law. What was the problem that uh, sin caused, the plan of salvation was designed to fix? When Adam sinned, we asked, did God get changed? In any way, was God changed? Or is God the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? I change not. God is the same. Did God's law get changed? Or is it eternal, constant, expression of his character of love? It does not change either. God's law was not changed by man's sin. Was the condition of Adam and Eve changed? Yes, Adam and Eve were changed. So if we don't go any further, we just understand that when Adam and Eve sinned, God wasn't changed. God's law wasn't changed. The condition of humankind was changed. Then you can ask the question, then where will the action of Christ have to be? Where will the application of whatever Christ is doing, however you explain it, where will it have to be active in in order to fix the problem? Will it have to be active on God? Will it have to do something to the law? Will it have to actually do something in humankind? And now you, so however you explain it, that anything that suggests, well, Jesus is in heaven applying his blood or presenting a sacrifice to his father to make legal amends or to assuage wrath or to adjust anger, it's all wrong. There was never a problem with God's attitude. There was never a problem with God. There was never a problem with God's law. It's perfect and righteous. There's nothing wrong with it. There's something wrong with the condition of man. And so Christ's mission on earth was to fix the problem in humankind. And we're going to unpack that further. So that's where the work of Christ and the application of his victory must take place. Now, when you understand that, that the problem is in man and the victory has to be applied in man, does it give you some insight right there as to maybe that's why Christ had to actually become human? Because that's where the work needed to be done in humanity. So what did Jesus accomplish at the cross? If you have the imposed law, the imperial view, the way the human law functions, remember human law functions, system of rules that you have to coerce or punish people for breaking, if that's your view, then what he did is he paid a penalty to protect us from legal condemnation and wrath of God or punishment inflicted by the ruling authority. That's what he did. That's the answer. And there's a variety of different subtleties and how it's applied and so forth that they argue back and forth and the specific legal application of all this. But, but the core root is this is the problem. Design law, something much more profound occurred. He provided the remedy to our sin condition 
and made it possible for this creation to be restored back to God's original design for life. That's what he did. Let's walk through. He revealed the truth which exposes Satan as a liar and secures the unfallen universe in loyalty. You understand if you put all the various parts of the Bible together that while some of the angels rebelled in heaven, not all of them did. And if you look in the book of Job, there's a time when Satan comes from walking to and fro on the earth and he begins to tell stories and misrepresentations and continues to lie. And the angels in heaven, they're not God. They don't know all things. They can't read hearts and minds. If angels could read hearts and minds, a third of them would have never been deceived in the first place. They would have looked right into Lucifer and said, oh, you're lying. I can see right into your heart. They can't. So this controversy is still going on in heaven. And this is why the Bible talks about things like the angels long to look into this stuff. Or we're a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. So, one of the things Jesus accomplished was to reveal truth about God and expose Satan as a liar and fraud in order for those angels who had not rebelled to have their uncertainties answered, their questions to be solidified in their loyalty. So the Bible says in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, talking about Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Did you notice, ever notice that? That heavenly things were being reconciled to God. The angels were being solidified in their loyalty and conviction. And Satan and affection and love for Satan was being rooted out, not because God was rooting it out, but because Satan was alienating himself as he was being exposed as a liar and a fraud and a source of, of, of evil and death. So the Bible says that Jesus, through his death, destroyed Satan and Satan's power, Hebrews 2.14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Did you know the devil holds the power of death? Right here, I hope your minds are going on, under the imperial legal view that God's law functions like human law, this is turned around. And in fact, it is not taught that Satan holds the power of death. It's taught that God is the source of death. God, in justice, must use his power to execute and kill rebellious sinners. And so we have this distortion of, of God's reality in which we now have a God who is the source of life, creates life, but also in justice becomes the source of death to kill his creatures. It's a fraud. It's not real. Death does not come out from God. We're talking that eternal death, the annihilation, the wages of sin death, does not come out from God. The Bible tells us that Satan holds the power of death. What is that power? Well, Satan is the father of lies, and his power to kill or to destroy a soul is through his power of lies. How does that work? Let's do some Bible math. According to Jesus in John 17, eternal life is knowing God. Not just cognitive knowledge and awareness. You know, everybody in this room probably knows about Barack Obama, George Bush, Donald Trump. We know about them. How many of you know them? See, this Bible knowing is very, very, a very small piece of it is cognitive knowledge. The bigger piece is the experiential knowledge, the, the unity of heart, the affections, the I know your soul, I know you. 
Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and, and brought forth a son. It's an intimate connection with. Eternal life is having your heart into intimacy and the knowledge that you know God. This is eternal life. So if eternal life is knowing God, what is eternal death? It is not knowing God. Eternal death is not knowing God. And then Satan's power are the lies about God he tells that we believe that keep us from knowing him. That's how he has the power of death. Christ destroys that power by revealing truth that destroys the lies and wins us back to trust in God. And thus Satan's power to keep us alienated from God is broken. So one thing he did, he revealed truth, which exposed Satan as a liar, reconciles or, or can, keeps the loyal angels in loyalty to God, and he destroys Satan's power, which is the power of lies that keep us from knowing God. But he also destroyed the infection of selfishness that Adam brought into the human species when Adam believed the lies. Lies believe, break the circle of love and trust, and broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. The human condition was changed by Adam, and Christ destroyed that infection of fear and selfishness known in the world as the survival of the fittest drive. Notice what it says in 2 Timothy 1.10. Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death, and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. He came to destroy death and restore life. Well, how did Jesus destroy death? What is the basis of life? Or where is the origins of life? Yes, I heard somebody say it. God. God is the source of all life. Life emanates from God and flows out from God to all beings who are in unity with God and continue to live in harmony with God and his design or design laws for life. What happens if one breaks this design? One severs the connection with the source of life. Dying, they die. And the day you eat of this fruit, dying, you will die. You will break your connection with me. You don't have life original, unborrowed, underived. You're not the source of life. Adam, you are a being I formed out of mud and I breathed into your nostrils a breath of life. You have life because you're in harmony with me and it flows out from me to you. If you break this connection with me, you're going to die. This is what happens when we break God's design law. We sever the connection. So death is the natural result or outcome of selfishness, breaking the law of love. Sin is deviation from God's design, and thus sin destroys the sinner. Notice where death originates. Death does not originate in God. He's the source of life. Death originates in breaking our connection with God, the act of transgressing a, a God's design or his law, if you want to use that word. And so the Bible tells us, for sin pays the wage, it's, which is death. Or James tells us, sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Notice sin is bringing forth death, not God. I like this one. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. This is design law, think. This does not fit in the imperial world. In the imperial world, there is no problem with breaking human law except the ruling authority catch you and then punish you for it. But design law, you can't escape the consequence of breaking the design law. It is damaging and injurious unless someone intervenes to heal the damage. And this is what the Bible is teaching. 
In Hard Sayings of the Bible, published by University Press, they understand this, and they, they teach in rejecting God's structure, you could call that God's design, and establishing our own, and violating God's intention for the creation, and substituting our own, we cause our own disintegration, which is exactly what the Bible teaches. It is a design law. We can't have life severing our connection from God. So how did Jesus destroy death? In order to destroy death, Christ had to restore humanity back to harmony with the law of life, the law of love. He had to put God's design back into the species human. And Christ loved perfectly and refused to act in order to save self. And then he destroys the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And what does the devil work to do? He has worked to erase or efface the image of God in mankind and to have humankind instead represent the character of Satan, to write Satan's character into the human species so that we become like him rather than like God. That's his work. Christ, how did he do this? Christ was a unique being. Have you ever heard the argument, maybe some of you know this kind of theological term, term prelapsarian or postlapsarian. If you don't know the term, it simply means there's an, a theological debate about did Jesus as a human being come with the nature that Adam had before his fall in Eden, before he sinned, prelapsarian, or did he come with the nature that Adam had after his fall, postlapsarian? And the debates go back and forth and there's never any, it's because they're both wrong. It's a false debate. Christ didn't come in either one of those natures. He is unique. Let me show you. Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living human being. Eve was taken from the side of a sinless being, and she was also created directly by God as a sinless human being. You and I and every human being since then, with the exception of Christ, was born from a sinful mother and a sinful father. Did Jesus come into, did Jesus' humanity come into this world in any of these three ways? It did not. Jesus did not come into the world like Adam, did not come into the world like Eve, and did not come into the world like us. Jesus is unique, and it's this uniqueness that gives him the ability to be our Savior. Jesus was formed in none of these ways. He was born when, the, when God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, came upon the woman, and the woman was born of a sinful mother and a sinful father. Just like you and me, Mary was born of a sinful mother and a sinful father. And so through Mary, he partook of our condition. But because his father was the Holy Spirit, he also partook of God's divine nature. And in Christ, our fallen condition and God's divine character or nature warded out in the human mind of Jesus Christ. The two antagonistic principles faulted out. God's design of perfect other-centered love battling with our fallen nature of survival of the fittest, me first, watch out for self. And Jesus overcame as a human being where we could never overcome. He restored God's design of love into the humanity that he assumed thus reconnecting the species back to God's circle of love, the law of life. So let's show, let's show you the evidence for this. Jesus in humanity exercised love, overcame the desire to save self. So notice, as soon as Jesus is baptized, he's full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan, he's led by the Spirit out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. 
Now get your mind around that for a moment. Just consider this. We heard the song by Michael last night, and and we all know the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. But Jesus is led by the Spirit out of the desert to be tempted. You understand why? Because he had a mission that no other human being had. He had a mission to fix, to cure, to confront, to overcome, to deal with, to eradicate. And he had to face it. And he had to choose with his humanity to apply God's design of love as a human being. He had to be tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, in order for him to achieve victory. And notice the temptations, how they came. And notice what the temptations are tempting him to do. Turn this stone into bread. Save yourself. Jump down. Prove. Exalt yourself. Bow down. Save yourself. Notice the temptations are at the core of our carnal nature, our desire to survive, our desire to save self. I also want to point out to you that Adam was temp- uh, Jesus was tempted in, in ways that Adam was not. Satan has three primary methods of temptation, and he uses them over and over and over again, and they really come most of the time in a sequence. The first temptations that he approaches most people with are deceptions, lies, deceit, falsehood, confusion. In Eden, he deceived deceived them. He presented lies. Right here, first temptation, he presents as an angel of light, misrepresents Scripture, and tries to deceive Jesus. That's the first approach for most people. Second approach that Satan uses of deception right out doesn't work. He tries to use inducements, bribery, um, some, some type of advancement that is illegitimate. And so he offered uh, Adam and Eve, hey, you'll become like God. You'll exalt yourself. You'll get a higher position. Inducement. And Jesus, um, prove yourself. Jump down. Uh, bow down. And I will give you all these little nations of the world. I'll pay you off really good. And those are the only two temptations Adam and Eve had to face. But Jesus, because of what Adam and Eve did, had to face another one, which we're going to get to in just a moment, but I'll tell you now. This is the third method that Satan uses. If he can't deceive you and he can't bribe you, then he will coerce you. And he will use threat. He will use pain. He will use suffering. He will use rejection. He'll use embarrassment. He'll use some infliction of harm that hurts you in some way to get you to compromise. And of course, that was the crucifixion, bringing pain and suffering. Adam and Eve did not face that temptation. Christ was tempted on levels that Adam and Eve never had to face. Jesus' temptations, he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And each one of us is tempted, notice according to James, when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. See, we don't just face temptation from the external source. We face temptation from our own desires. It says Jesus was tempted in every way just like we are, and we have, does that mean Jesus was tempted by his humanity, internal to himself? Yes. Look at Gethsemane. Did Jesus experience powerful human emotions in Gethsemane? Yes or no? Did those emotions tempt him? And what did the emotions tempt him to do? To save himself. That's the core to the carnal drives. Act in self-interest. And he was tempted in every way just like we are. Yet, when the temptations came, he did not give in to the temptations. He chose not my will, not what I feel like doing. No, I'm going to choose love instead. 
So the temptation was to save himself, but with each temptation, he says, no one can take my life. I will give it freely. An act of love, an act of, so he is countering the drive for survival with the principle of giving, the law of love, actively using this principle in the choices he's making as a human being. At the cross, more temptations to save. Notice how Satan piles on the temptation here at the cross. In Matthew 27, 42, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself if he's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. Save yourself, we'll believe in you. See, there's a little inducement there. He's being coerced with the cross. It's harmful, it's painful, he can't stand it. And here's another one. Hey, we will believe in you if you just save yourself. Imagine the, the depth of temptation. Luke 23, 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Jesus, though, said, if anyone wants to save his life, excuse me, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Notice he's setting up the antagonistic principles. God's principle of other-centered love, I love you so much. I'll do whatever I have to for your health, for your welfare, for your beneficence. Clearly, if it comes down to it, I give my life that you might live. Versus survival of the fittest, which says, I love myself so much. I'll do whatever I have to to protect and advance myself. And clearly, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. This is what Christ is saying here. Those who want to save themselves will actually lose their life. But those who lose their life, surrender will actually be reconciled to God's kingdom and find eternal life. And Jesus, of course, is doing that in real human experience at the cross. When Jesus refused to use his power to save himself, but instead gave his life freely, he destroyed death, the selfishness which severs the connection of the law of life and brought life and immortality to light. This is what he did. Why did Jesus have to die? Because Adam infected humankind with selfishness and life requires the law of love in order for it to be experienced. That's how it's built. If Christ at any point, as death is approaching Christ, at any point, if Christ uses his power to stop death from taking him, who does he save? That's an act of selfishness. So Satan wins. So he dies not as some payment, some legal thing, but as the way to eradicate the survival drive and restore God's perfect law of love and the humanity he assumed. So the only way to destroy selfishness was by experiencing the temptations to act selfishly, but with his humanity, with the human brain, choosing to love perfectly. Thus he establishes a new, healed, perfected human character. Christ restored the law of life into humanity by giving himself freely in love. And Jesus rose again as the inevitable outcome. This is how Jesus, not seeing through the portals of the tomb, not having a vision of future events, could say to his apostles, I'm going and I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise on the third day. Because when you understand design law, you can predict things. Remember, how many can predict what will happen if I let go of this? You can predict it. It's going to fall. Jesus can predict when I restore the law of love and eradicate this survival drive that I inherited from Mary, I will rise again because that's the basis of life. Christ restored, destroyed selfishness, the basis of death. He restored the law of love, the basis of life. His resurrection was the only outcome of the law of, of life being restored. Remember, the law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving or bringing life to the soul. So Christ procured the remedy to our sin condition. Notice Hebrews 5, 9, and 10. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. What do you mean, once made perfect? What, wasn't Jesus always perfect? Not in the Bible definition. No, Jesus was always sinless, sinless. But Bible perfection is not about sinlessness. Bible perfection actually means maturity of character. And God can create sinless beings, Adam and Eve, Lucifer. But character is developed by the choices of the sentient being. God cannot create the character. So once Jesus, as a human being, developed a perfect character, then he became the source of salvation. John 6, 53 and 54, Jesus says to his apostles, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink the blood, you have no life in you. Forever eats the flesh and drinks the blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Flesh and blood? Are we talking cannibalism here? This is an important text for multiple reasons because it just disabuses people that there's anything special about the literal blood or the literal flesh. Jesus is not wanting people to be cannibals and drink human blood or eat human flesh. It's a metaphor. It's a symbol. And the symbols of flesh and and blood were transferred to new symbols, which are still symbolic, bread and wine. And if you think about how this works, when you eat a piece of flesh or a piece of bread, it comes into your body and it's broken down and those molecules become building blocks to the actual tissues of your body. When you, Jesus is the word, word, truth, made flesh. When we partake of the flesh of Jesus, we're partaking of the words or the truth of God. When we partake of the truths, they come into our mind and become the building blocks of our ideas, our concepts, our perspectives, and they destroy the lies and win us to trust. And when we are one to trust because we're partaking of the words of truth that destroy the lies, we open the heart, and the Bible says the life is in the blood. And so when we open the heart, we receive the life of Christ. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And we get a new heart and right spirit. We become partakers of the divine nature. Thus we receive the victorious life of Christ reproduced in us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're transformed in heart and character. So key learning points, sin changes the sinner to be out of harmony with God and his design for life. God's design laws Uh, for life could not be changed. So in order to save humankind, we had to be changed, restored to be in harmony with his design laws. Jesus came to accomplish this work, which we could not do, while simultaneously revealing truth to destroy lies and win us back to trust. The primary lie, the core root lie, is that God's law functions like human law. Okay, it's time for a roundtable discussion.